it's not up to one person or it's not up to a team. It's actually each person having to do reflection work. And that's not easy, right? That is not easy work when we're indoctrinated into systems across lifetimes, generations, intergenerational, ancestral influences that don't set us up to be thinking about other people in this way. Don't set us up to be thinking about liberation for one person is connected to everyone else's liberation. Inclusion (laughs) sure is a big word that brings up big feelings for many. And for some, the concept of inclusion polarizes and elicits extreme rhetoric. And maybe for others, it stretches our own capacity for discomfort and our ability to take responsibility for the impact of our leadership and the structures that we've supported, but also exclude. So what does inclusion mean to you? What does inclusion feel like and look like in the spaces you work and do life? Do you see inclusion as an obligatory box to check or as something you're willing to put your time, resources, and effort into so it's sustainable over the long haul? Because let's be honest, inclusion as a performative box to check is sadly still too often the norm. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Inclusion benefits everyone. Yeah, everyone. Now, Inclusion does not mean some groups will be excluded, but it does mean a shift in power distribution that reflects more equity. Now, I want to note shifts in status quo power are very different than not being included. And I note this because those who've always been included often feel like they're being excluded when more people have a seat at the table and have a voice in how things are done. And when there's a shift in how you've always done things, how you think, how you lead, your discomfort level increases. And in a world that values efficiency and speed and productivity, we can feel pretty darn uncomfortable doing the internal work and the culture work to welcome inclusion. It goes against the grain of how we've been taught to work and what we've been taught about power and how things change. I often say inclusion is inconvenient. And because inclusion forces us to think differently, it stirs up a lot of our stuff, lightning fast, often resulting in an interesting centering around this word, particularly for those of us in dominant culture that can often take us out of perspective taking with the experiences of those around us. I notice how this word stirs up feelings of not being included in those in dominant culture, or at minimum, we go to great lengths to make sure we feel included, often at the expense of others. And I learn a lot from skilled leaders like my guest today who help those who share a lot of privileges like myself and those in white and cis-dominant-led spaces to do the deep work, to be able to shift our perspectives, our beliefs, 
and actions so we can create a standard of recognizing and valuing all perspectives and contributions. Dr. San Chang is a Chinese-American non-binary psychologist, trainer, author, and DEI organizational consultant with more than 20 years of experience. Through compassionate engagement, they partner with organizations and teams seeking meaningful structure and interpersonal change. Dr. Chang's work is grounded in social justice, cultural awareness, and humility. Their areas of emphasis include trauma-informed diversity, equity, and inclusion, LGBTQ populations, trans health, and body liberation related to racial justice and eating disorders. Now, pay attention to how SAND connects the importance of inclusion to sustain diversity. Notice when SAND shares how at the heart of inclusion is not about optics, but creating an environment where people feel deeply connected and valued. And listen for how SAND names the role shame has in our efforts to be more inclusive by shutting down our fear of making mistakes instead of embracing our errors as a part of the process of learning. All right, y'all. I'm so excited to welcome Dr. San Chang to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Sand, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you. And I, I've been doing kind of a deeper dive on some words <laughs> on the podcast that often get tossed around, sometimes with a little bit of lack of understanding of really what they mean or they're used even in marketing or to cover your bum kind of situations without a real depth of understanding or true alignment. And so, yeah, one of those words that I want to go deeper into conversation today is the word inclusion. And I, I want to note too that I, that one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you in particular is because I have learned so much about inclusion, the depth of it, more so than what it looks like to perform it or to think it or to analyze it, but what does it mean to live it and be in community with it? So that is why I'm really excited to hear from you and learn from you today and for those who are listening to get the, that opportunity too. So I want to start with just kind of how do you define inclusion? Yeah, thank you for this question. And you use the word aligned or alignment and I think I just wanted to really honor that, that this is about inclusion across systems. It's also around uh, aligning what we think and what we feel, and also aligning with what's happening in our bodies. And so these mm. terms can be very sort of, uh, I don't know, can lead to like a lot more of like mm, engaging in a cognitive realm. And oftentimes we forget like, what does it feel like to be a body? in a particular space. And so I'm always trying to listen for myself and I'm just noticing like, I, I, I also have, there's parts of me that have a hard time with the word inclusion. And in my body, I feel a little bit of resistance when I hear any of these terms, right? Diversity, <laughs> inclusion, equity, DEI, even though I work in these spaces and have for many years. So I think the idea behind inclusion is 
we know that diversity isn't enough. We know it's not enough to get, a, you know, people of different backgrounds. Um, diversity is certainly necessary, but it's not sufficient. We can't just throw mm. a bunch of people together and think, oh, everyone's going to now feel like they're welcome and now feel like they're equally valued. And so the idea behind inclusion, often I hear it termed or spoken about as let's create a seat at the table. And when I hear this, I think, well, whose table is this? And mm. that inclusion, inclusion's not enough, right? It's still someone's table that was created with a certain or certain certain kind of person or certain people in mind. And there are ways in which inclusion can pull for tokenization. It can pull for assimilation, come be part of mm -hmm. our group. And for the person who may be trying to get a seat at the table because of survival, because of capitalism, it may not actually feel good to try to try to belong or to assimilate to feel like one that you know that oh i'm joining your table now i want to be like everyone else here and so i'm really interested in like how do we create new tables sometimes i hear even people talk about like do we even need tables <laughs> like, you know like how, how i don't know how much we want to go with this metaphor but it's like who created this space how do we recenter decenter certain folks who have always been centered and how do we center the needs of the most marginalized or the most overlooked or the most under-resourced um, because of systems of inequality. Um, so when I'm thinking about like, what does true inclusion mean? I'm also thinking about, you know, where's the power, right? So sometimes mm. we hear words like belonging and inclusion and they're such feel good terms. Like, yeah, we just want to feel like, connected to people. And absolutely, I, I believe that connection is important. However, we can also bypass the fact that there are power differentials and that we need to look at like, who's at the top? Like, what does leadership look like? Um, how is power shared? Is, are those who are, you know, of the dominant culture, whatever the context might be, are they willing to share power or even give up power? So those are the things that I'm really interested in. Um, when I enter systems, I you know do I do DEI work with organizations, and I'm often asking questions like, "Who's already been doing this work?" I know that there are people who've been doing this work. Are they getting paid? Is there a way for them and their concerns to actually be heard, or are they not seen as quote experts because? they aren't quote DEI consultants, right? So I'm, I'm looking at things like that. I'm looking at not just stated commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion, but I'm looking at what are the concrete indicators of work and action, um, and especially are the leaders engaged? Um, so much of the time it's people in leadership who, um, they might say, okay, I'm fine with that, but are they actually engaged? In, in the work. Mm -hmm. And if the leadership isn't engaged, then it's really hard to actually get that kind of um, commitment and action across the whole system. So let me, okay, there's, I have a couple of follow-ups here. What's, what's interesting as I listen to you share this definition about inclusion, there's a curious curiosity coming up on who's the one to say you're included and you're not. Who's the gatekeeper mm -hmm. there? So that's standing out to me. And inclusion isn't just 
I, I would love to hear you like talk a little bit more about, well, we included people that are different than me. So we mm-hmm. did inclusion. What, re- like, mm-hmm. what does inclusion look like in action? You touched on it a little bit, like mm-hmm. how is power shared? How are decisions mm-hmm. made? I want to, can you go a little bit further on inclusion in action versus optics? Mm-hmm. Yes, sure. Uh, and I, and <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah. So, okay, let's start with optics. You know, I think the past few years, especially, but longer, <laughs> because yeah, these terms are buzzwords, they're marketing words too. So optics mean, oh, let's get a photo shoot and make a brochure about our program. And let's make sure that there's a black person, Asian person, Latinx person, and everyone looks really happy. <laughs> so, uh, or optics might be just even the statement of we are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And to me, that statement doesn't actually mean anything if it's not backed up with, okay, this is what we're doing in our hiring practices. This is how we're thinking about who's even doing the interviewing and how that impacts someone's Mm -hmm. performance in an interview. It looks like who gets screened out before we even get to see right? Like through like recruitment systems, it looks like um, pretty much at every touch point, every aspect of a system, HR, um, built environments, are we thinking about inclusion across the board with respect to cultural identity, diversity, you know, ability, uh, neurotype and neurodiversity, gender diversity. So really, broadly, intersectionally, and when I use the word intersection or intersectionality, I mean thinking about systems, not just identities, and systems Mm. that really aren't created for everyone to have equal access. And so I'll give you the most concrete example I can think of is if I walk or, you know, step into a building and I can't access an all-gender restroom, immediately that's going to impact my experience of however long I'm in that space or whether or not I'm going to even stay in that building. And so that's such a fundamental thing, right? Like if this is a workplace, um, that's a cue already. And I can tell you lots of stories about these situations. <laughs> no need to get into, but yeah, it's or thinking about um, uh, the ways that we expect people to communicate whether it's all expected to be verbal when for some people that's not the best way to access information or that's not how people's brains process information. I think you understand a lot about this, right? And um, in order to make certain changes because so many systems are set up not to be inclusive, in order to make changes usually takes money. And so I'm also thinking about- yeah, money and time. And is that something that an organization is willing to invest? Because everyone's all happy and it sounds really good until they realize they have to pay something, give something, effort in some way, or change something. And can it be done in the time that it takes? Not (laughs) a, here, let's throw money at it. Can you fix it? which I think is a really common week. approach. Yeah, a really common approach to DEI. Can you come in, do one hour training and 
fix this problem. And that's impossible. Exactly. Versus this is going to be something that's a practice that we're going to sit with the discomfort of, you know, what's standing out to me too. And I haven't put language to it this way. I'm curious how this lands with you is with inclusion, especially around the, the time and money piece is, do I really believe in like, like I can put together a brochure or I can put together a statement for the website, right? But do I really believe that that's important, that inclusion is important? And do I know how to do it or am I willing to invest in the support to help make that happen? So there was like, I have to do this so that people don't quote cancel me or I don't get sued or people can keep, keep them happy, you know, that kind of attitude versus this is important to me. So how can we do that? And it's like almost a belief like uh, this is and it's So, so then once it's a belief, it isn't, how do we get everyone to be happy versus how, like you're talking about how do we develop the systems so that our hiring practices and our workspace reflect what's on the brochure or the website mission statement? How, how does that land? Am I, and let, fill in the blanks yeah. if I'm missing anything. No, yeah. I mean, I, I think as you're talking, I'm, I'm really thinking about how it's so easy to look externally or to mm-hmm. like seek an external solution for a problem that feels external rather than to know that if everyone is part of a system that is showing a problem, for example, bias in hiring, um, that it's not up to one person or it's not up to a team. It's actually each person having to do reflection work. And, uh, and, and that's not easy, right? That is not easy work when we're indoctrinated into systems across lifetimes, generations, intergenerational, ancestral, you know, um, influences that, that don't set us up to be thinking about other people in this way. Don't set us up to be thinking about liberation for one person is connected to everyone else's liberation. It's we, we live in a very like kind of, it's a white supremacist, colonialist, capitalist system that says more for me. And if you get more, I'm going to get less. It's like a scarcity model. Total and scarcity so it's like, model. Yeah, it's just like very competitive and, and ho- hostile environment, right? And the buy-in on that is actually really challenging. I have really different experiences with different organizations. And I can really feel it almost immediately in a 30-minute, quote, discovery call. And sometimes even I people reach out to me and say, we really need your help because part of the work we need is for you to convince our CEO that this is important. (laughs) So I often get these kinds of of calls and I really feel for the employees in those situations, a lot of whom have been doing a lot of like free labor, exhausting labor, when there's something that's blocking movement. And when that can't actually be seen as, oh, this is beyond the optics. This is beyond profit. This is beyond looking like you're at the cutting edge. This is actually Mm -hmm. about knowing that um, when people feel connected, when people feel valued, um, that it makes for like a better environment for everyone. That's a tough one. And, and and there's something about I there. It's so ingrained. If you're 
and I'm just speaking from how I've been kind of trained and what I've been taught that it's you or me. It really mm-hmm. isn't we. Mm-hmm. And that piece, of, there's the piece around efficiency and urgency yeah. that really just, it's like, I'm so over this. I'm so over this. Can we just like move on and get back to it? You know, yeah. and, and I've been, I've been that person and I feel like part of even, you know, parenting my children has helped me continuously eat a ginormous amount of humble pie uh, with my own ableism and my own kind of worship of tidy and neat. And along with just intentionally being in community with people who have different lived experiences. And you you touched on this briefly that within 30 minutes, you're kind of able to assess um, the kind of spectrum of inclusion, <laughs> what that means and, and the flavor of it from a space. I'm wondering, are, you, know, you talked about for you, like even walking into a building and is there a place, uh, is there, is there a bathroom that you can use that feels welcoming to you? <laughs> like something mm-hmm. as fundamental as that. Are there other thought processes or metrics that you have that help you determine if a space or a person is or is not inclusive? Well, I mean, I guess I will say that also inclusion is not one thing, right? It's got like all these, there can be, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes that's where the breakdown is. We're doing so well with this aspect of inclusion that we're not paying attention to everyone else who's still being excluded. Yes. And, and it's sort of, mm, there's still a, a, an approach of let's put out fires and this fire is more important. And you don't see that like all these fires are like connected. And so, you know, everyone wanted to put out the fire, of, you know, 2020 after George Floyd and uprisings and everyone wanted to throw money at, at trying to get to racial inclusion or maybe appear to be <laughs> inclusive. And I heard a lot at that time of, okay, well, we can't get to trans stuff yet. We can't get to stuff around neurodivergence yet, you know, and that kind of, and I get it that like, we need to put effort towards all these different areas. And um, I see, I, I see that as one of the obstacles. I think many of us are indoctrinating these systems that are very binary, are very much about right or wrong and about categorization. And so mm. there's this, yeah. you know, and then there's like all the characteristics of white supremacy. There's like the urge to fix and I'm really aware that that urgency is paired with people already feeling tired, overworked, and so it's a setup, right? So, because it's like, oh, well, this is going to take time. No one wants to hear that. <laughs> so, it's like, so this is going to take time. And well, how is that going to happen? Everyone's already oh, so overstretched. So, this is actually a larger problem around um, labor practices, around um, workplace culture around grind culture um, that mm-hmm. actually is in the way. And then, of course, there's the perfectionism. We want to, I hear so many companies say, we want to get it right. And I'm like, I get that sentiment and I appreciate it. It comes from a well-meaning place. And the get it right, um, the perfectionism, which usually is coupled with shame, is often an ob- obstacle too. Because if you are so set on getting it right 
then when you make mistakes, which are just part of the learning process, uh, often that shame, that shame shows up to shut everything down. And I've seen that again and again, is that organizations are really interested or appear to be really interested. And then when the work gets hard and when there's feelings <laughs> and when there's a challenge that shuts things down, um, I think that is one of the biggest barriers to being able to mm. move forward is shame and fragility. Mm. How do you differentiate shame and fragility? Because part of me feels like they're the same. And forgive me if I'm if I'm missing something there, but I feel mm-hmm. like that shame is at the heart of what will make me reactive and mm-hmm. and then center things on myself or shut down or walk away or tap out. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's how I frame yeah. it. But yeah, correct me if yeah. I'm missing something. I mean, and of course, I mean, I'm I'm also really interested in words, like very and semantics and. <laughs> So like, just even in this moment, I'm like, oh, what is that difference? And this is just what I'm coming up with in this moment is that I always think about shame as coming back to the person and the I'm bad, right? The spiraling into I'm bad, I can't do this. And it's so intolerable to be with shame that, okay, I'm just going to quit. I can't do this. Um, Fragility, I often see as having an energy that is focused on the other person. Like, mm-hmm. I can't handle this. You're calling me out. You're being mean to me. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, be- I'm being corrected. It, I often see fragility paired with um, kind of framing of oneself as a victim when one actually has the power in the situation. Okay. I don't know. If, does that make... I don't know if that makes sense. That's how it's making sense in my brain at this moment. I'm sure that they're like cousins, you know, but. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a fair statement. There's to me, yeah. it's almost like concentric circles. Yeah. yeah. I would say that, yeah, that, that, that piece of I can't handle discomfort or accountability or being disagreed with or whatever my internal capacity to me, I inextricably see that linked to my relationship with being able to tolerate, you know, the feelings of shame or even guilt in that conviction. Yeah. And, you know, as we are both internal family systems therapists, (laughs) I'm also aware that like we all have different parts that react differently to shame or in other words, when shame is there, we have different protectors with different strategies. And so I also, one way to think about it is that the, because fragility, I think of it as more as like um, something that's expressed because people can feel it in the environment when you're expressing fragility. Like I almost think about it as like fragility almost as like a strategy of a protector. How it blows through a room, how, how fragility blows through a room or how I navigate my experience with shame in the moment may or may not blow, have the same quality yeah. as fragility. Okay. Also like, we're just two people with two perspectives and someone else could be like, that's totally not how I see it. And I'm like, great. There is no right way. <laughs> I really appreciate you saying that uh, because that's actually one of the biggest fears and concerns that comes up with those that I work with. The like really wholehearted folks that are like, crap, I've been getting it wrong and I don't want to get it wrong 
Where do I start? And sometimes they fire hose themselves with mm-hmm. all of the books and the terms yeah. and the language, right. and they don't want to get it wrong and they don't want to do harm. And it's and like, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go I mean, that's it. just making me think about like really early memories of being in school and, and like looking up definitions is such a, <laughs> a big part of, you know, which yes, it's, uh, it's good to know. I think I think it is good to know what words mean, so that we can be intentional and 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 try to express what we mean. And they're like assignments, right? Around like how do we get definitions? And I I witness this a lot in the work that I do. People want definitions. I may have just spent an hour talking about trans experience and trying to change how we view gender and our capacity to think critically about the binary systems of gender or about cis hetero centrism. And in the Q and A, someone will just get really caught on like one, one word I use that is actually not very important to the message usually. And it's, yeah, sometimes people get really caught on like, I need to know the definition. I need to memorize the thing so I can get it right. And, you know, I've said this a number of times, I I don't memorize me because we can't just go around trying to memorize, oh, you're this person from this group. So I'm going to memorize. I mean, that's actually, I don't know how you were, your graduate training was, but my psychology graduate training had these like textbooks with horrible generalizations about when you work with Asian people, keep in mind that they don't make eye contact. Or when you work with Latino folks, remember that there's this, you know, it's just, I mean, just horrible. So that's not how we learn how to be good to each other. We do it in relationship and we do it by making mistakes and we do it by like actually engaging emotionally, not just with our heads. Yeah. And it's even coming to terms that we're going to mess up. And, and, and sometimes for me, I realized the toughest piece was, okay, I'm going to mess up. I'm not going to be perfect. Duh. So how do I want to respond when I mess up? What are the things and what are my practices when I mess up? And even then it's a practice. And what do we do in relationship? But if I'm trying to perform and trying to avoid perceptions of myself versus you're setting the per- centering the person who has been hurt, right? If that's how I feel like, oh my gosh, am I trying to protect myself? Or am I trying to go, oh crap, I just hurt someone I care about. Mm-hmm. And I need, I need to, I need to hear this out. And then, and then obviously for me, my IFS practice helps me go, I got you. We'll take care of this. Like, can you give me mm-hmm. a little space right now? Right. So I can really hear this person and really listen well so that and then, and then we'll take that back and work on it, you know, having a pause in that moment. So I, it's such a dance though, in a world that still teaches you got to be perfect or it's like death. It's like and, this weird. And never extreme. admit you're wrong. <laughs> you always have to be right. And that it's weak to be wrong. It's weak <sighs> to make mistakes. I feel so sad about kids who are continually still today internalizing that message. Yeah. They get taught it still. I still hear it with my kids. Like, you know, they get in trouble for making a small mistake or a huge penalty. Some of the ways of education, I'm like, so lots of lessons still real Mm -hmm. time. 
um, with folks who aren't leading well (laughs) at a young age. Um, I'm wondering, you know, we're touching on some of the, but you touched on this already on some of the common barriers that we're we're talking about, like they get in the way of cultivating inclusion. We've talked about shame. We've talked about fragility and perfectionism. Is there anything else that you feel like is important just to name some common barriers that get in the way of us trying to really be in relationship with folks who are different than us? I mean, there's all of those things. There's all of those ways that we've been socialized. And then there's, I mean, it's just deep, deep cultural (laughs) trauma, you know, like it's, yeah, it's hard when we're trying to fix things that happen in a moment, but that actually span like centuries of trauma. And so like, I often feel like my job is actually, I can try to help all I can, but sometimes it does feel impossible because we can maybe try to support, you know, when you're working with um, someone and then like you might be able to make some progress in helping someone in like the, in a therapeutic setting. And if they're still going home to a system that is teaching them that they're bad for being them, it's really challenging with like, like all everything that's very grooved, you know, like, and we're trying to create these new pathways. I fear that I sound really pessimistic (laughs) and like that's very dreary but you know there are days where I'm just like wow this is not easy this is not easy work and yet you know I feel it's important to stay with it and I feel inspired that there are more there are people who are doing the work and that I yeah I don't have to be alone in doing no I I definitely resonate with that feeling at times and to me, it doesn't sound like pessimism as it is just the state of affairs. It's like, mm-hmm. here we are. And when you look at the black hole and you're like, oh, and those little moments, like you and I still do clinical trauma work and seeing mm-hmm. those little moments of someone who does the healing work, like the legacy work, and then seeing how then that shifts, how they show up in mm-hmm. their homes and in their workplaces and in their communities and then the domino effect of that, that's yeah. that's the hope. And that yeah. can happen in our workplaces and in our schools and our faith communities, in our neighborhoods, that we can be little contagions within mm-hmm. this. And even if it feels like first order change and not full on second order change, mm-hmm. it, it 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 has to come. I mean, that's yeah, I, I hear you. Yeah. To me though, it's not it's not cynical or pessimistic. It's just a yeah. realistic state of the union. And you know, that helps me have hope, though, to keep doing this one person, one group at a time. Leading is hard. <laughs> Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. 
finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights or just about optics. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, inclusion, innovation, and doing things differently than how you were taught. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. I want to shift gears a little bit. You and I can geek out talking about research. Yeah. Right. We yeah. both love we love research. Yeah. We love to talk about how people talk about research. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and oftentimes, like we'll hear, well, I, you know, when people I did my research, I'm like, that's not Googling. And I don't want to be a jerk about it, but I'm like, that's not like mm-hmm. I, I did. I did. A, I did a lit review or mm-hmm. I saw what Google said about this. But mm-hmm. one of the things that there's a really a big movement kind of coming up. There's a couple of different movements that are, people are being held accountable, particularly. And you and I also have specialties within the eating disorder community. And I'm excited to see like a lot of the research around, like we'll just use eating disorders as an example, um, has not been inclusive. Mm-hmm. And so yet that there's this huge studies that have been done, gold standard research, but the people that they studied, there was not inclusion in mm-hmm. then representation in those. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on how a lack of inclusion in research mm-hmm. impacts the way mental health and physical health treatment approaches are given along with the well-being of those who are not <laughs> in dominant culture. Yeah. I think eating disorders, yes, is a perfect example because there's so much bias within the field and there's bias about is impacted by eating disorders. And I mean, all the research, all the, the majority of the research we have on eating disorders and a lot of other psychological research is done on college students. So already there, there's bias and exclusion. There are certain ways that, yeah, you're doing research on people who have a certain kind of access, um, that's going to have an impact in terms of racial diversity, class diversity. Um, And so the way we frame questions in research, so are we asking the right questions? That can be a problem. Um, There are ways that in demographic, like simply including people in and asking the right questions in a demographic survey can really give a lot more information. Like if there are limitations in data collection, including demographics, it's really hard to generalize findings. And 
it leaves whole populations out. So I'll give you an example you may be aware of. In 2015, um, there was a large scale study of college students, and it was about eating disorder symptoms and um, Elizabeth Deemer and her colleagues. And it was really the first study that I know of, and that I think many of us, you know, kind of in the field know of that just even included transgender as, as a gender option instead of just man, woman. So man, woman, transgender, we could go into a whole conversation about how we collect data around gender identity, which we can't do right now. But just let's just say for this one, even included transgender and found that trans folks um, actually endorsed um, being diagnosed with an eating disorder in the previous year, eight times higher. You know, the number was eight times higher than in cisgender heterosexual women um, and even higher, you know, than cisgender heterosexual men. And so all of our eating disorders, treatment, diagnosis, assessment really centers white, cisgender, heterosexual, college educated women. And that's the eating disorder stereotype, right? So um, that affects also our popular conception of who suffers. And if that's happening, then people are going to get underdiagnosed. They're not going to get the treatment they need. And also the, the understandings we have about eating disorders are going to really be missing crucial pieces like food scarcity, like poverty, not just I want to be skinny, right? So these like like really, really huge pieces that can add to someone not being able to just, I'm going to do this in air quotes, eat when they're hungry, stop when they're full, because I don't actually believe that that is like some kind of moral imperative. <laughs> yeah. And then this is what really, really pisses me off <laughs> is that we're also in a system that overvalues the idea that research is the only way to justify something and that if it's not quote evidence-based that we can't believe it so we can't believe lived experience so this is all tied in with like colonialist practice around um, knowledge attainment and what what feels valuable or true and how we understand human beings and so there's a lot of problems in not just eating, just like, like all research on humans, pretty much. And so obviously, I care about research. Well, maybe not obviously, I do care about research. I'm not someone who is like, I don't believe that study about vaccines. Like, of course, I, I do very much believe in research. And research is not the only thing. And if there isn't something that's like, um, there's been, you know, some, it hasn't been studied, Part, part of it is that there hasn't been any funding for that study because no one cares about this community. Um, no one wants to put money there. So that it's just kind of, it's a loop. It's a loop. It's a big um, loop. The yeah. eating disorder piece is a good kind of metaphor for how that plays out with other, whether it's mental health or physical health issues though, and the lack of inclusion. So that's why I brought it. I knew you'd have a lot to say about <laughs> oh, that yeah, because, I do. Yeah. you know, yeah. Be, but for good and also discounting lived experience mm -hmm. and this evidence-based piece, you know, it, it, it's almost there's a hierarchy and a supremacy in mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. where also those modalities are, are a lot easier to test than some of these mind-body approaches. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that we do, healing practices that we can't measure and measurement itself changes the thing. 
like observing it, trying to quantify it actually might take the magic. I don't even want to use the word magic, but like might take like what's like um, what's actually effective out of what is being done. So, okay, example that really pisses me off, I'm just going to gripe, is that, you know, I, I'll still go to like medical offices and talk to people who are Western medicine trained and they say things to me like, well, acu acupuncture is an evidence-based. And I'm like, oh, are like millions of years, you know, like thousands, not, thousands of years of my people, like not evidence, like Western medicine mm. is like so much newer than Chinese medicine. And I'm not saying Chinese medicine is better and Western medicine is bad. Like I'm not saying that. It's I'm just not saying to be discounted. Yeah, yeah. But I think that that is something that I experience again and again and again. And so it's like, oh, what, how do you measure evidence? Like, oh, this is, how do you measure effectiveness? How do you measure whether something works? Oh, it's because this paper said it did. Yeah, and as we're and it's interesting. I just came off another uh, leadership team with Dr. Frank Anderson, who's a lead trainer in IFS, and you know he was just saying, like with neuroscience, like so many people like talk about neuroscience, like it's a monolith. Like it's like there are people who do not agree with polyvagal theory. They mm -hmm. actually think it's oh, bunk, absolutely. you know. Yeah. And yeah. and so I think even just for us is is we're, if we're going to be quoting something or we hear that being quoted like find the original research, see who was mm. studied, see how many people, because there's different, sometimes it's like a sample that leads, wants to lead to a bigger study. Mm -hmm. And, and then where do, where can we all advocate for honoring lived experience, but also the funding for populations that haven't commonly been studied, because then there's a treatment modality, whether again, physical or mental health, that's been studied for a small population that's getting generalized for everybody. Because it's like gold standard. And again, I love good yeah. research, but a good research study, if it's not inclusive, is still lacking. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I completely agree with you is to look at, like, go back to the study, read through the methodology. I like yep. that is that is the thing that I do to help me to to discern whether or not I should listen to whatever this study is saying. Um, I mean, this really taps into like, how do we gain knowledge and what do we believe is true, which is like, yeah, you, you mentioned earlier, like, don't just Google it. And I'm also like, don't just believe something that someone said because they wrote about it on Facebook. Facebook is not a news source, a credible news source or like social media. It, it isn't? What? <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah. I know this is tricky, right? Because like. Like, I think about this a lot because I'm like, oh, anyone can go on Instagram or any social media platform and say, I'm an expert. I am a coach. I am a blah, blah, blah. You know, and like, this is what I believe to be true. And then if they have enough followers, then they may appear credible. And so I'm like, oh, this is a little dangerous. And because there's so much gatekeeping around knowledge yes. and gatekeeping yes, around yes, academia, yes. these platforms actually can be really great sources of information so sharing. And they've helped so many minoritized yep. communities to be able to find each other, to be able to understand um, within information about ourselves. And so it's very, I feel very mixed about it. 
Yeah, it, it is complex. It is complex. But I, I wanted just to bring that up so that we're not just in this kind of cons- highly consumption of news. A lot of folks that listen to this show, there's there's sharp cookies and folks mm-hmm. who appreciate these things and want to be thoughtful. And it doesn't take a PhD to just to go and do a little search on what are we quoting? How are we quoting it? And how, and also what, what are we supporting, you know, with, with our research dollars before you go, I, I, I would be remiss to not acknowledge that. And we're recording this in the spring of 2023 and I saw an NPR study and I looked into the NPR study and I checked their sources (laughs) before I brought this up that over 400 anti-trans bills have been proposed in many states here in the United States. Okay. That's just, um, I don't know. I'm having my own physical reaction. I'm even fearing, you know, feeling it in my head and my eyes. Um, and I, I want to hear you share what you believe the stakes are for all of us. If we don't get involved and do the work to fight these dangerous and not inclusive and dehumanizing proposed laws. Yeah, no, thank you for acknowledging that. And, you know, anti-trans bias has existed for a really long time. And there's been barriers that trans people have faced for a really long time, but never before have we seen this kind of like, um, the, the ways that there are policies being created specifically to block access to rights, um, all kinds of rights, rights, healthcare rights, um, you know, participation in sports, access to um, just, you know, different kinds of resources, education. So, and it's actually hard for me to talk about because we're in the middle Mm. we're so in the middle of it so like i'm not going to pretend to say something really smart and like concise about it i'll say like we're in like a really dangerous and violent place when it comes to attack on trans bodies and trans rights and about um and decisions that are about bodily autonomy and sovereignty and when we start to allow these bodies to make decisions for people, let's say, you know, oh, it's about trans people. It's not just about trans people. I mean, trans rights are connected to all aspects of gender justice. So connected with what people might deem as, quote, women's rights or abortion rights, reproductive rights, um, anything really about our access to care. You know, once this is like, codified and seen as legitimate, I mean, it is. <laughs> it already is. It's not new, right? There are states that have banned healthcare, medically necessary, life-saving healthcare for trans folks, um, especially trans youth, and also adults um, in some places. So, so yeah, this is really a, a really scary, and I think everyone should be pretty terrified. You know, this is. It, and and so trans communities can't just on our own be trying to fight for these rights. We need other folks. We need everyone to do their part 
um, and, and being part of like movements that are, are fighting for rights that because like what we talked about earlier, like it's all interconnected. Um, so I think that's what I'll just say for today. <laughs> I'll just say for today. If you're comfortable saying, what are you even noticing what you're feeling right now as just that we sit with this question, mm-hmm. anything else coming up for you? Mm-hmm. Let's see. I feel a part of me is feeling so much grief um, because there is this, I don't know, that maybe there's another part of me that believes that like progress happens, it, we move forward, right? Like things get better. Just that simple idea like, oh, it's getting better. Okay, incremental growth and change, it'll get better. And so it feels like we have, it, it's really moved backwards. But it's there's grief there for sure. There's anger, you know. There's um, there are times where it just feels like, uh, you know, exhaustion, exhaustion. Um, I think it's a challenging time. It's it's challenging to try to like find like where are those pockets of like hope, pockets of resistance. You said something, you know, briefly that you. Know, it can't just be on the trans community alone to be fighting mm-hmm. against this kind of oppressive types of laws and regulations and all of all of the backlash that comes from that. So what does that look like to you? What is because I, I, there are a lot of people I talk to that feel the enormity and then go, I don't know what to do. I don't want to like at first is the perfection part that comes in and then there's the overwhelm. And then sometimes I'm just like, do you care about humans being treated well? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you care about folks having access to healthcare mm-hmm. so they can live meaningful lives and functioning lives? And so what there seems still seems to be a disconnect. We still other Mm-hmm. folks that don't connect with our lived experience yet, as you keep beautifully saying, it is all interconnected. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to folks listening who are like, I hear this. It feels yeah. far away though. Yeah. So think about this a lot when I'm doing any kind of teaching or training and, and we're th- like talking about intersectionality or we're talking about different aspects of human experience, cultural experience, identity, within these systems and my invitation to consider, you know, what is a movement that you don't feel personally connected to? I know that's really hard because like usually our motivation is because of something autobiographical. It's really sometimes challenging to, to find the care for something that doesn't feel like it's connected, but it is connected. So then I just think about like, what are the movements that I don't feel is connected to? I do believe it's my responsibility to try the best I can to learn about those things. Um, because as many, you know, with the marginalized identities I have, I also have immense privileges. So those are the areas where I need to do the work, right? And I, where I get to be an ally. So yeah, I think the challenge slash invitation is how can I do something that isn't necessarily personally, doesn't feel personally connected to me? And it might be, how can I move my money? How can I 
participate in supporting movements, giving money to organizations that are doing this work. If I don't know what to do, right? Um, how do I educate myself? How do I have conversations with my neighbors, with my loved ones, people around me? Like just having these conversations. Um, how can I make calls to legislators? You know, it doesn't take a lot of time to pick up a phone and make a call or write a letter. So those sorts of things that know uh it would be very helpful you know if, and, and is helpful when people are willing to do that kind of thing i think that's a great word thank you for that reminder i'm going to be sitting with that how do i center things that don't feel personally connected to my story mm-hmm. and where can i be of help mm-hmm. and those little things i want to say do matter as someone who worked in a senator's office and started off answering the phones they wanted a tally of who called from what state on what issue, and they would give a report to the senator every week on wow. those calls and the mail. It matters. Thank it you matters. for and saying that. Yeah. You got it. You got it. Um, gosh, Sand, I, I, I hope that uh, you consider coming back because there's so much more I want to talk about and continue to talk about these issues. I really appreciate you taking the time and, yeah. and have a great appreciation for the labor it took to to talk through this too. So I I, I really am grateful. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if, if you're comfortable moving to a little bit of lighter note, just like yeah, to ask some quick sure. questions. Let's, let's do it. Okay, thank you. So what are you reading right now? Um, okay. I'm reading, I'm reading about 20 things (laughs) and pretending to read about 20 other things, but really, I, you know, most recently was, I have been listening to the audio book of, um, Rest is Resistance by Trisha Hersey. So good. So good. Yeah. Yeah. What song are you playing on repeat? Yeah. I had a hard time coming up with this one, but the one that I often play all the time, you know, when I'm doing like a like a workshop, a training, I'm the DJ in a training, <laughs> is um, Human Nature <laughs> Human Nature by Beautiful Chorus. It's just like, I can listen to that and just feel like, so it feels so good, feels so happy. Beautiful. Yeah. What is the best TV show or movie that you've seen recently? I recently finished um, the last season. Well, no, actually, well, the most <laughs> updated um, episodes of this, this show on HBO called Sorta. It's brilliant. Ooh. I love it. Watch it. Yeah, it's great. It's sort of. And it's about a um, Pakistani, non-binary, um, Canadian person, young person, young-ish person, um, and their life and their relationships. And uh, it's, yeah, it's really beautifully done. The characters are awesome. The writing is great. So, yeah, highly recommend. Oh, adding it, Adding it to the list. Do you by chance have a favorite 80s movie mm-hmm. or pop 80s pop culture preference? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was raised on 80s dance movies and and I'm a dancer. And so like, yeah, it's just 80s dance movies are like my comfort place. I mean, they're all really problematic <laughs> and formulaic, but there's something incredibly comforting. So I would say my favorite is Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Oh, no, you did it. You know you did it. I love, oh my gosh, that's bringing love me. Love that movie. Isn't it heartbreaking? And like you, you really named it. It's like this paradox of problematic oh. and comforting. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's- I'm like, don't go back, <laughs> don't go back. You'll ruin it. Don't watch it because like it's just yep. the '80s will surely be extremely offensive. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. 16 candles. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Horrible. Horrible. Yeah. But I and loved like, that movie growing moments. up, right? Yeah. Loved Better Off Dead. Yeah. Loved, like, you know, all oh the God. movies. All the movies are like racist, classist. <laughs> homophobic <laughs> it's just horrible and the the dance montage like that's like speaks to my soul oh, you know <laughs> that dance montage yes um what is your mantra right now sand yeah this has been my mantra for the past few years just because i can doesn't mean i should hey, amen to that what is an unpopular opinion you hold i think this is unpopular but it's all bodies are worthy of care yes and who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? I think just seeing the people around me, you know, when I see collective care, when I see people who actually are all struggling and supporting each other. So I see that a lot in the communities that I engage in with healing. Um, and yeah, so just, I think just seeing people connect that, that is inspiring to me to, to stay, to keep doing what I'm doing. So yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you, Sand. Where can those listening find you and connect with you and your important work? Uh, you can reach me at my website, which is sandchang.com. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at hey Dr. Sand. I don't do a lot of social media these days, but I post when I have like events and things that I want to share. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this conversation and sharing a little bit of your heart and your incredible amount of wisdom. I'm really grateful. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. Appreciate you too. Okay, before you go, here are a few key nuggets I want to make sure you leave with from this incredible Unburdened Leader conversation with Dr. Sand Chang. Now, Sand reminds us that the work of inclusion involves making mistakes and moving through the discomfort of them together while staying connected and curious. And they also point out how shame is a fierce barrier to moving forward with expanding who is included and who has a seat at the table. And they note how we need to be very wary of the different ways shame likes to protect us and the ways things have always been done. And lastly, they noted how the work of inclusion takes time as the burden of these exclusions are often rooted in generations of trauma. I'm curious, when have you felt excluded? And what do you believe is at the heart of these feelings? What actions can you take to include more diverse perspectives in the decisions you make, in the spaces you hold power, and in ways that bring value, not just optics? And how can you do something to support people in communities that are not in direct connection to you. Now, our relationship to inclusion and what it truly means to include and cultivate belonging brings light to our practiced, not just professed values, our biases and fears. And when we place inclusion at the center of how to be an effective leader, we recognize all benefit when we make a priority to truly welcome those who typically are underrepresented. And this is the ongoing work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free unburdened leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 
And if this episode was particularly meaningful to you, I would be honored if you would leave a rating, a review, and share it with someone you think may benefit from it. Thank you so much.